welcome to the latest episode of Professional Builders Podcast. I'm your host and PB editor, Lee Jones. This month's episode examines the crucial issue of the energy efficiency of our housing stock. Professional Builders Edward Kelly is talking to Professor Will Swap, Director of Energy House Laboratories at the University of Salford, about the Energy House 2 project. Thanks for the introduction, Lee. Energy efficiency is one of the big topics in the construction industry at the moment, as all eyes turn to the future home standard and net zero ambitions, results from University of Salford's Energy House 2 project are coming in thick and fast, proving whether these energy efficiency goals are actually achievable and how the future UK housing stock can reach them. My name's Professor Wilswam. Uh, I'm the Director of Energy House Labs at the University of Salford. What we're really interested in is anything to do with domestic energy use. So we cover both new build and we're also considerably retrofit because also that's kind of that's kind of the big energy efficiency net zero problem. And we really cover everything right the way from sort of fabric and, and insulation materials, doors, windows, systems, and from gas boilers to air source heat pumps, infrared emitters and then also a lot around the digital as well so we're starting to do things around well storage smart metering renewables and that kind of digital energy space so you know right away from curtains to battery use of vehicle to grid and we have five labs and what we're famous for really is measuring things so a lot of the work you see out and the the things about performance of buildings is, is quite often based on models and you know we're all familiar with SAP and RD SAP, uh, you know, in, in the industry, what we try and do is contribute realistic data to that. So specifically, what we're here to talk about is is the Energy House Two, which is is relatively new, is it? Yeah. So Energy House Two is there because there's an Energy House One. So in 2011, we built a Victorian end terrace under climate control conditions. So basically, it's a, a sort of 62, 63 square meter. Two up, two down, with a half a house to replicate next door. And it was within an environmental chamber, so we could take the temperature to 30, down to 13, wind, rain, snow. And really, it was a brand new way of doing things, because essentially what that meant was that we could do repeatable experiments. So before we kind of had this whole building under control conditions method, what you do is you either, you know, you take a boiler, you take it to Kiwa, and you get it tested and you get your certificate, you take a bit of insulation, you take it to a UCAS accredited lab, you get your lambda values and your R values, etc. Or you do big field trials and they're notoriously expensive. Um, they can be quite emotional and difficult to do because you, you're in people's homes. So the way we did it basically meant that you could bring all the, the things together so it was like a real house, but then we didn't have to have those big, long field trials where you have to wait for the weather to happen. We could do a repeatable experiment, and that's enormously powerful. So we could test the house as it was, do something to it, test it again, take one away from the other, and you would have the thing that made the difference. And really, for us, you know, that kind of opened up a whole world of opportunity. So we did a lot of work with product manufacturers. And really around about 2015, we decided that actually our facility was quite small. It was replicating, you know, 20% of the UK housing stock by typology. And we wanted to do something bigger. So Energy House 2 was conceived at a seven o'clock meeting and started with a piece of A4 paper. And so really, you know, it, it takes a lot of inception mainly to find the money. 
but also because no one had ever done anything at this scale, long design period, raising the funding. And so we built it um, through COVID and the supply chain crisis. So what we did was basically we scaled up that initial house in a lab and then basically built two chambers. So in terms of chamber volume, 20 times the size of the original facility. So chambers are sort of 20 something meters by 20 something meters by 11 meters. They're two identical chambers. They go down to minus 20 up to plus 40. And then we can do all the weather. We have weather rigs. We have an alpine quality snow machine, which is bags of fun. And then we have, so the original energy house we built on a concrete plinth. In here we have pits. So builders can come and build proper foundations. And then there's also big hangar doors. So we can get the largest object. You can carry on a UK road without a police escort. So that means people can bring diggers, street cranes, and you see kind of build in a more regular way. So we got it in 2022, and then we had an extended commissioning period. So, you know, we had to make sure that we could control the temperature as closely as we wanted to scientifically. And then we ran a competition. And I think the thing is, it is sometimes, you know, in work, you're kind of lucky because at the time, the, the future home standard was starting to be talked about moving into consultation. So we opened a competition up and we had a number of companies, three companies that were knocking at the door were Bellway, the fourth biggest house builder, Sangaban and Barrett working together. That's the biggest UK house builder and the biggest products manufacturer. And so they kind of proposed building two houses. And, you know, the, the volume developers, are, to say they're very competitive is, is a mild <laughs> understatement. But actually what we did, and I think that it's kind of sometimes the power of being a university is you can kind of convene people a little bit. So they proposed to build two houses side by side and they shared data and a researcher. And I think really what's really interesting is they made all the information public. So the first reports, which are around the fabric performance of the building. So we've got one timber frame and then with a more traditional build out and then one closed panel timber frame. So the fabric reports came out about two weeks ago. So they're available online and all the details there and they one kind of hits the future home standard in terms of its fabric and air tighteners. The other one exceeds slightly. That was a really interesting exercise because actually, I think from our point of view, we'd always work with product manufacturers and they do lots of research and development. And I don't think developers had ever kind of done anything like this. So we did do the Z house with Barrett's and that was kind of, it, it was a big learning curve for us. But the, these two houses in chambers under control conditions, was a very different way for them to work. And I think, you know, the value in what they're doing, so we'll be doing the systems next uh, and the testing's done, we're writing the reports, but making those publicly available for everybody to say, look, this is how you do it warts and all, or this is how you don't do it, depending on the results, because the results are the results. It's a really valuable lesson for industry because it's not something I think we're always very good at doing in terms of the sector is, is just sharing not just great news but also you know where we can improve you've got some results then so so like you said that you know you've got the two two kind of reports that have come out are there any sort of key takeaways that you could maybe share with us i think this is kind of the thing isn't it, it, it so when we've looked at previous field work you kind of always see a bit of a performance gap and some of them can be outrageous i think what we've seen is first First things first is the future home standard is achievable. The technology is there to do it. I think it shows that actually with good site management and a good design, 
it's clearly doable. And I think what's been really useful, you know, policymakers sometimes, you know, they'll come up with a set of regulations, but actually having something to show them and to say, look, this is the outcome of your policy is really, really useful. I think the other thing is, is those small things. The difficulty is, is I suppose in the fabric report, on one of the properties, what we had was a manufacturing error and, and we're going to do some extra work on that. On the other one was really about air tightness. And the issue with that wasn't so much the build quality, it's the fact it has four separate heating systems in it. And so there's a number of pipe runs <laughs> because actually, you know, and that's a, the, the, from that point of view, that developer bellway, you know, to take those four things and just put one against another is an incredibly valuable piece of work for them. But it's an incredibly valuable piece of work for the whole sector. But yeah, there were some issues then, obviously. The rest of it was quite small. I think for us, it's, you know, getting that out, out onto site. And I think probably what we will see is an increase of modern methods of construction, off-site fabrication, more frames. So I do think that is going to have to happen. And I think the heating systems will be interesting because obviously there's not bags of work on infrared. I think the issues around control and, and that kind of battery PV, electric vehicle, air source heat pump model uh, or other electrical heating model, I think those are going to be some really interesting ones. I think fabrics kind of the sector's bread and butter and actually they know they can do it when they put their mind to it. I think it's going to be the services and, and the let's say the digital is going to be the, the, the bigger challenge. This month's issue of Professional Builder is packed full of advice, support and opportunities for the trades. Pick up a copy at your local Builders Merchant trade counter or visit www.probuildermag.co.uk to view a digital flipbook version. But you can also sign up to receive every issue via email. So you mentioned as well, so heat sources there and, and, and air source heat pumps. So, so is that is that something you played around with as well? Then is you know the difference between sort of using a boiler and air source heat pumps? So obviously, with the future home standard, it's off gas. So yeah. we've done loads of work with boilers because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there was still a million of them installed last year, and and I don't know how we, how we are for air source heat pumps about fifty thousand. So they're still important. So some of the work we did last year, so the, the, the advice on boiler turndown, we did the experimental work for that because obviously we could do the different flow rates and the, the flow temperatures under identical conditions. So what I suppose we're looking at largely at the moment is air source heat pumps or infrared. I think there's some interesting choices to be had around emitters. So we've got underfloor and we've got oversized radiators, but we've also got perimeter as well. So um, there's a product called Thermoskirt, which we tested in the original energy house many years ago. And so really understanding and actually measuring in a way you can't really do in the field to see actually, you know, what's the air temperature here, 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 here and here will give us a really good understanding of that, really. I, I mean, I suppose because we do a lot of work around smart metering, it's kind of that that integrated system and, and that's relatively complex. There's a new standard coming out. But I think some people have a few of the things hooked together, but actually hooking together more bits of that energy system and making it work for the consumer. And, and that's the core, making it work for the occupant. One of the differences between Energy House 1 and Energy House 2 is that in Energy House 1, we couldn't put people in. Like we could put people in, but you had to be with them. Whereas with Energy House 2, 
we can put people in the building overnight and for several days as long as they're prepared to live inside a giant warehouse. <laughs> so so we have had people in overnight. And I think that, that for us is, is kind of, because in, in the same way you kind of have labs and field trials for people, we've kind of got a quasi-experimental setting of, of a real house under control conditions in a heavily scented environment. So we're not quite there yet to really understand how we might use that and it's it, it's something we're looking at because like everything you do you know you want to make sure you get valid data and just shoving some people in a house and hoping for the best is probably not the best way to go about it we're going to you know try and build this kind of structured way of collecting data and, and understand because it might have implications for the way we collect data in the field i think a lot of the things we get back from the field in terms of people are very self-reported and, you know, you ask yourself, oh, I, I don't leave the lights on, I don't do this, I don't do that, I do, don't do the other. And nobody admits to themselves that, you know, they wander off, things are on, things are on standby. And I think it's an interesting area. And I think, you know, fundamentally, I think that's the thing about what we're doing is building people's homes, aren't we? And actually, you know, our bit of it is in terms of construction is quite short and, and kind of people live with, whether you've done a good or bad job for quite a long time. And it, it's particularly interesting at the moment, obviously, because, you know, like you said, we've, we've got future home standards coming up and, and net zero aspirations. But, but it's also, you, you know, I mean, look at the weather outside. Is it, is it so unpredictable and, you know, completely going from polar cold to, 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 to massive amounts of heat? So, like you said, like, it's from comparing to Energy House 1, where you said it, it only went up to how 30, much, 20, yeah. yeah. Whereas now you've got the 40 degrees, which um, sadly is something that we're, we're probably going to be having to deal, deal with in the UK. So when we set out to do Energy House 2, it was 2016 when we actually spec the environmental, uh, and, and we did some modelling, you know, we, we kind of got publicly available data. So we aimed for 95% of the people in the populated area. So not Antarctica, you know, where there's like one person per thousand square kilometres or whatever. <laughs> 95% of the time. So we, we thought that would give us enough to go out. I think now we're kind of feeling how we upgrade it. So so within that minus 20 um, plus 40, we can hold it within half degree. We can kind of push it past that, but we lose the control. And the other thing is solar gain. So we can control the humidity as well. So we can take it up to 100% relative humidity. And the other thing is that kind of solar proper rig to like we have it where it's it's kind of a proxy we're actually really looking because we we think kind of overheating for us is going to be the next big thing yeah exactly like you said you know it's, it's a lot of um sort of producers of roof lights and stuff like that now that's that's the big thing now obviously is unwanted solar gains because it's you know at the moment with how hot it gets it's, it's just it doesn't matter how well the rest of your house is sort of protective against that yeah glass and stuff like that is uh, is really yeah not not yeah, and I think the thing is, is, is thinking about how you design because it's, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because you're kind of designing to like whatever it was minus six the other day, and then you've got forty degrees, and it's it's how do you get something that kind of responds to that? And that's a real design challenge. And I think that's like to some extent that's why I think we're quite valuable because more than anything is we can get things wrong. And that's the beauty of it. It is you can bring a product or a design feature or, or a house that you can sort of chop and change. And if you get it wrong, you know you've got it wrong. You know why you've got it wrong. And you haven't got it wrong in a thousand houses on a massive development. And it's the same with retrofit. You know, so 
trying to get things to work, what works, and actually try and de-risk what eventually goes out to the customer. I think sometimes we kind of rely on engineering knowledge, models, and and then we go out and do it, and it kind of doesn't behave as we thought it would because we've kind of thought about it sometimes in isolation and not as part of the whole system, and quite often not as the way the occupant behaves. Yeah, it's like you said, it's having a realistic thing of how things are going to be built and how does it perform. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I suppose the other thing is, because we do a lot of products, we do work with small innovators, and some of them are brilliant, and some of them have a very loose grasp on the laws of thermodynamics. Yeah, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else that impacts on building in future? Do you know, I, th- I think if I was a small builder now, and you see the future home standard, it's like, you know, we've been doing the same thing for, for quite a long time, you know, some brick and block and stick a gas boiler in it. And I think for me, it's a big structural shift. And, and I'm actually quite pleased that, that, you know, the big volume developers and the Future Homes Hub and things like that have taken a bit of responsibility about pushing information out there. And, and I think it will take a little bit of time. But actually, you know, I think the, the builders, merchants and, and the big developers and people like us and the Future Homes Hub and all, all of the different bodies really need to come together to make this as easy as possible. Because I think not being able to deliver to future home standard is going to be problematic because where you've been looking at what planners have been doing, you know, and they're, they're oh, a net zero home, where is the standard? And they've lots of them been writing passive house in. My view is probably there's not enough blue tape to build 200,000 passive houses a year. And actually the future home standard sort of knocks around passive house classic. It is quite a different so I think how we kind of upskill and how we get the product families together and make sure that um, the information's there, because it's all very well changing regulations. You know, the, the big developers, they've got an office full of people working towards this. So how do we actually support the SMEs to kind of do that? And I think that, for me, is really important because actually I think some of the Really, you know, you get some really good quality builds from small builders because it's almost artisanal. And actually, to some extent, that kind of very high quality small build can be, you know, they can actually hit the targets much easier because of the, you know, the internalized QA. But I think that still there are lessons to be learned and, and information needs to be out there. So, I, 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 you know, I think we're contributing to that, but I think it's probably a bigger industry thing, you know, Federation Master Builders, et cetera, et cetera there's a bigger thing that maybe we need to come together around that kind of problem because it needn't be one because I think the information's starting to come out, but it's actually putting it in people's hands, not in the form of a big, you know, here's a bunch of you values, but actually this is what you do. Because, you know, I've worked around the construction industry a long time and they're kind of, you know, they learn by doing, they're like what they call kinesthetic learners and they're problem solvers. So actually what they want is a set of rules of thumb. And I think how do we get, from the science down to, do you know what? If you see this, do this. And that's kind of where we have to get to next, I think, really, for the, for the smaller builders. Like you said, I think it's, it's going to have a lot of value for, um, for, for a lot of people, and especially our listeners and stuff like that. Um, you said, you said the, the most recent reports are available, aren't they? Yeah, so if you follow us on at Energy House Labs on LinkedIn, the reports are available there. I think they, they'll have come out from our technical director who, you know, he has led the majority of this work. I'm not, I'm not going to take credit. So if you follow Professor Richard Fitton, who had his inaugural lecture last night, 
the links are there. They're not super long reports, you know, they're like 30 pages, but there's a lot of background about the facility. Um, but there's all the, you know, the as designed information, as built information to the level, of, a decent level of detail. You know, I think that's just useful if anybody's got that kind of interest, just to pick those up and have a little look. And then hopefully we will be doing the systems reports. We're just writing those up now, but hopefully they'll be out in the spring. And for those of you interested in retrofit, we do a, a report from the government and that'll be out in late February, hopefully. Make sure you've got some dates in your diary because Tool Fair and Professional World Alive is making a return with the first of six 2024 shows. Thursday 29th of February and Friday 1st of March we'll see the iconic Alexandra Palace in London play host to this unique trade show. It's an event that puts tradespeople at its heart with great show deals from the industry's best known brands, live demonstrations and seminars. Parking is free and if that's not enough, there's a free bacon roll and professional builder t-shirt for every attendee. Check out all the dates and venues for Tool Fair and Professional Builder Live at www.toolfair.info. One more thing, just because you touched on it, and I feel like we should probably, just before we leave, we should talk a bit more about it, is retrofitting. That's obviously something that a lot of people that listen to us or read the magazine will be into. So um, what sort of insights have you got from that? I think broadly, I don't think we've done it very well as a country. I think we see lots of individually really good examples. And there's some like great boutique retrofitting companies out there who kind of have a grasp of all the, you know, the unintended consequences, detailing. And this is largely because, you know, the big retrofit projects are run out of government grants of eco and social housing decarbonisation fund. And to me... We haven't kind of, if, if we want to do it, there are four things that basically have to move all at the same time. We have to have sufficient technical knowledge that can kind of handle the variation between different properties and understand the risks and understand how, how all these things work together. I think that information's out there, but it's all over the place. And so for me, that kind of needs bottoming out and centralising and actually, you know, some decent tools for people and possibly some open source tools that so people aren't bearing loads of cost. Things like shared details of of common you know areas of, of things to fix on different types of houses, and and have those properly organised and maybe have them validated in some way. So there's a whole raft of technical problems. The other thing is supply chain, and we haven't got enough skills in anything. The construction industry is particularly you know in parlous. As long as I've been involved in it everybody goes oh yes we're in the middle of a skills crisis and that has been ongoing and probably will be ongoing until i retire but skills supply chain and how they operate together because i think sometimes you know particularly when you see big programs is you have a big contractor front it up and then subcontract margin subcontract margin and kind of the value falls away sometimes so actually some more direct labor organizations that kind of build people's careers might you know and, and how do we incentivize that and then I think the other thing is the skills sector, for me, looking outside in, I'm surprised either employers or learners can navigate navigate it particularly successfully. And that, you know, so you've got boot camps and T-levels and HNCs and this and that and the other. It's actually what do we really want from it? And I think the other thing is, is when we bring those learners through, either we, you know, college leavers or upskilling, reskilling, where's the demand for those jobs? 
because I think the other thing we've been doing with the grant funding is going, here's a load of grant funding. Nothing for two years. Here's a load of grant funding. Oh, yeah, you will need to get it spent by the end of March. So everybody's rendering in January when they shouldn't be rendering. That, that demand side is strategic. But then also we need to think about the owner-occupiers and the private rented sector. Kind of understanding the demand, the issues around split incentive for the rented sector, that's really interesting because I think, you know, I often go to meetings with retrofit experts and you kind of go, probably half of you, if you wanted a retrofit, maybe wouldn't know where to go or you'd only have two people you'd speak to. I think that's that advice, that kind of thing that trust Mark and, and, and that all kind of needs pulling together as well. And then the last thing is money, you know. And, and the big thing about retrofit, if you do it properly, I think the problem is uh, sometimes when we think about retrofit, we're all looking at kind of Victorians because they're, they're difficult and fun. But, you know, there's still things like unfilled cavities, loft, you know, there's things we can be doing to houses. And I think the problem is, is it, it's a difficult question, isn't it? Do you do lots at sort of hitting the 40%, which you can do reasonably cheaply, or does everything have to be a net zero retrofit. I think if, as long as there's a pathway through there, I think my my view is we've got carbon budgets. So it's much better to kind of keep hitting the low-hanging fruit as long as you're not blocking out the opportunity to go further later. And that's actually quite a difficult technical road to hope, to be honest. I think the money thing is, the, is, a, is a big thing. And, you know, we don't have the resource to get everything to net zero, but I think we do have to have more of a strategic plan and we need a 10-year plan which is buried in mind we've got an election coming up but I, I and i do think i do think that there is probably a possible commitment to maybe you know a longer term program and a more integrated program so you get devolution of these sorts of things so manchester you know greater manchester where i'm based will have devolution Thanks to Professor Will Swan for some fascinating insights into an issue that will dominate the construction sector for years to come. I hope you've enjoyed this month's episode. For more from us, pick up a free copy of Professional Builder magazine from your Merchant Trade Council. Thanks for listening.